Hello and welcome to episode 144 of the CogniCast, the podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm Russ Olson. This week we're going to talk to developer and longtime friend of Clojure and professional musician Gotti Shaban. But speaking of music, this week also marks the introduction of our new intro and outro themes concocted by Cognitech's own Ben Camphouse. So listen for that at the beginning and end of the interview. And before we jump into the conversations, we do have a few announcements. If you're going to be in the New York area on September 12th, you will definitely want to drop in to hear Closure Inventor and Cognitech CTO Rich Hickey talk about Datomic Ions. Head on over to closure.nyc for all the details. We also have lots of Closure Conj news coming up. The call for papers is open until August 31st, so get your great talk ideas in now. That's at 2018.closure-conj.org speakers. In addition, the Opportunity Grant applications will be open until also August 31st. So if you're interested in closure and attending the conj and are from an underrepresented group, we want you. Go on over to 2018.closure-conj.org org slash opportunity dash grants for those details. And finally, Conj sponsorships are also available. Share your company's story with the community. That's 2018closure-conj.org slash sponsors. If you have a closure-related event you'd like us to mention, drop us a line at podcast at cognitech.com. Well, that's about it. So on to me and Gotti in episode 144 of the Cognicast and our new theme music. started. All right, here we go. Hello, this is the Cognicast, and today is Tuesday, May 29th, 2018, and today it is my great pleasure to welcome Gadi Shaban to the show. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Russ. Happy to be here. Yeah, so uh, your path and my path seem to have... uh, we crossed twice, um, more or less by accident in the last few months. Um, we started interacting, uh, more or less randomly on, uh, the closure Slack. And then I met you in person and didn't realize that you were this person in Slack because you don't look at all like the text I'm used to in Slack. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, I will admit that. I, uh, <laughs> I guess I need to update my avatar. But yeah, you were uh, you were helping some uh, some beginners in the closure Slack, and yeah, I just uh, I, I saw you making a concerted effort, which is a really it's a cool thing to see, you know. I love hanging around with beginners at anything. It is uh, I I get this real thrill out of like watching people get something for the first time. Um, and you know, I would pay money to hang out in the beginner chat room for just about anything. So the traditional first question in this podcast is, is to ask the guest in this case, you to relate some experience of art. So do you have some experience in art that, uh, you want to share with the audience? 
I do. I I'm a I'm a musician. I play piano. I um, play with the Charleston Symphony down here. And um, during this time of year, May and June, I end up uh, playing a lot, uh, being on stage quite a bunch. And uh, we have the annual Spoleto USA Festival, which is pretty prominent classical, uh, jazz, dance, opera, sort of multidisciplinary festival. And there's, I think, in the hundreds of shows um, or just ticketed events that happen. Uh-huh. I was playing one of these things on Saturday. It was at the Morris Street Baptist Church, which is a super historic Baptist uh, church here. And I um, was playing a show with the Charleston Spiritual Ensemble, and I was just doing the uh, do gospel piano, which is not he's not you know my expertise but i love playing this with this one group and i you know i only get to do it maybe once or twice a year and uh saturday was one of those times and they did this one piece called he's all over me um, <laughs> which uh had this amazing recording that maybe we can link to um oh absolutely but i i could not get it out of my head and it just it has um uh, it's just got that like it's, it's an up-tempo gospel tune with, a, um, you know, the choir all in unison. Right. And it just it starts off loud and it just gets louder and louder and louder. And on top of all the, the madness, there's a there's a soloist just egging the choir on. But I don't know. I, I loved playing in a in a sort of gospel uh, rhythm rhythm section when I get when I get the rare chance to do it. That's that's you know you know as I, I'm sitting here thinking about a gospel music. If you asked me if I listen to gospel music, I would probably say no. It's just not something, just kind of part of my life. Except that it is the kind of music that if you hear it playing, at least for me, I will sit down and listen to it. Although I don't know why I don't go out of my way to listen to it. You know, um, it is it is a style of music that's just kind of gripping. Same here. I. Uh... Yeah, it's just uh, it just pulls you in, and you know, I mean the the ma- I'm not a religious, super uh, religious kind of kind of guy, but uh, I mean, just the the music just is so powerful, and it it uh, captivates you yep. right away. When it's good, it's good. Yes, you know? yes. So uh, I I think that leads me into into my natural first question, which is how did how did you uh, I, I'm going to guess that you started out as as a musician and ended up doing programming, or in addition, you start you did programming. And I wonder if you can sort of take us on that journey from where you started to to where you are now. Yeah, I I went to traditionally a strong programming school, but I went to that school for music okay. instead. Um, I was a piano performance and orchestral conducting major in, in college. And the first three years after um, uh, after college, I, I was a full-time musician, really. And mm-hmm. I would um, play concerts, play, you know, play solo, play with chamber music, concerts, play um, a lot. I did a lot of musicals and musical theater and um, uh, as well as orchestral things and in charleston south carolina it's a you know it's a cultural town it's um it's a great town it's probably not big enough to uh sustain a a living off of being a classical musician you know i wasn't i wasn't in you know bars playing sets every night i was you know classical music concerts were probably less frequent 
and and oftentimes, you know, during the summer, everybody emigrates out of Charleston because right, it's just right. really too hot. hot. Yes. Um, so, you know, like a lot of uh, programmers, I, I, you know, it, it was something I'm familiar with um, writing code, but it, you know, I, I did it out, out of economic um, mm-hmm. necessity, and so, um, you know, I probably felt like a sellout a little bit for the first year or two, um, but. It's a naive thought that you know you're selling out, that you're turning your back on music. It's it's really I was just doing two things instead of one thing, mm-hmm. and I've, I've been doing that ever since. I um, I you know, on days where, where I have concerts now, I uh, sort of make a make a big shift at five or six p.m. and put on a suit and uh, <laughs> um, get myself get myself ready for a concert. And sometimes I warm up. Sometimes I don't have time to warm up. Wow. And I, and I just go, but. Um, but yeah, I, I, I started out in, in a, in a hospital doing it work, like kind of systems integration stuff, you know, may connect this radiology system to the patient demographic system, um, that kind of thing. Sure. That's where I also learned closure. I, Ah. um, I think people, people thought I was some sort of pearl wizard and, um, but what they didn't know was I was spreading closure. (laughs) (laughs) in um in my terminal and i was sort of doing a lot of the you know data munging manipulation etl stuff that i you would normally do with pearl i was just doing it with closure and it kind of felt right to me so were you basically so you were basically sneaking closure into an organization that was not aware they were doing closure that's right it was in in our division we didn't have sort of a sanctioned uh, development group right so it was a lot of um, analysts and um, yeah the, I uh, I was I wasn't even covert as to, to sneak it in I was just doing it because it worked for me oh there you go so so did you uh, were you literally doing Pearl and wandered from Pearl to closure I, I, I'm curious as though is the why you how you ended up with closure I wasn't doing Perl, but I was doing um, all those things I should have been doing in Perl, like um, just uh, awk and sed and mm. bash, a lot of, a lot of just text munging. And um, but then you realize, oh, this text munging in the terminal really only scales so far. And I was maybe 23, 24, and I don't think I knew any better. But um, <laughs> but anyway, but I guess I did because I uh, learned an honest to goodness real language and uh, sort of adapted my my workflow around that and that really served me for for, for quite some time <laughs> wow one of the things that i uh, always find interesting is when people pick up a language more or less in isolation pick up a programming language in isolation they tend to go in interesting directions with it that maybe isn't what the rest of the community is doing i'm wondering if that was your experience at all did you were you always sort of plugged into what people were doing and how they were doing it in Clojure, or were you kind of off in your own for a while? No, I was I was really off on my own. I uh, didn't become plugged in until I'd say maybe a couple of years later. But the I had a lot of habits from you know from from object oriented languages that I grew up. You know, I, I guess I I learned C plus plus and Java. Mm-hmm. And, those are, you know, those are some pretty strong idioms, and you you have to unlearn some of that 
in uh, in writing effective closure. That's in some in some respects. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really like adapting your thinking. So probably the first six months of doing closure, my brain was taffy, and you know, I didn't <laughs> understand why, uh, you know, why you would not use a def, for example, in ah, right. the middle of a of a body. That's a common. It's a common thing that you would expect. Um, if you're if you're just sort of translating concepts laterally across um, um, across languages, like oh, this is a definition, this is a variable, it is a slot for change. Yes, yes, but it's not. Yes, right? it's very very different. So in fact, in the process of editing my book, getting closure, I, I actually say that a whole bunch of times the book for beginners and I say several times don't think of what you're doing with def as um, set you know setting a value to a variable because it's not quite the same thing and I said it often enough that my editor came back and said you know you said this here 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 and here and I'm thinking yeah I should say it a few more times because keep it's, saying it <laughs> yeah it's uh, they are it is not what you want I, th- I think the closer uh, analogy is is when you're setting up a constant in a more uh, traditional programming language. You know, it, that's more like what DEF is really for in in production code. Exactly. Yeah. Obviously, I'm a fan, but uh, what drew you to Closure? What was it about Closure that made you pick that instead of sticking to uh, good old C plus plus or Java or something? I had really no frame of reference with. Um, production quality code when I was um, just starting out. I was I when I was starting out, it was it was a utility for me. It was just about um, I have some sort of structured data over here, and I have structured data over over there, and the the this most straightforward way to um, to to do that is just to move it into an intermediate format, which mm-hmm. was you know a closure map and. Um, I hadn't. I didn't really have uh, the larger concepts of you know what what it means to be production ready, uh, monitored uh, software that you know that a that a company would produce, right? Mm-hmm. I was I was um, the company and and when I started out was me. No, oh, okay. And if it if it moved from here to there, it was it was, and did it correctly, right? I mean, that was that was about it. So it, I guess I, I've forgotten what your original question was <laughs> i was <laughs> oh i have that effect on people um i i was asking you what it was that made you pick closure versus Perl or python or you know the, oh. the million other things that you might have picked as 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 uh you know relatively new person writing code i guess java seemed a little bit overkill for mm-hmm. the sort of um iterative cycle that you you go through when you're um doing etl a lot of times you have to, you know, trans, trans, transform into the destination systems uh, API and then validate. And I guess it's not very interactive in Java. Um, Closure is probably closer to the shell script experience, right? Right. right. You're able bit. to um, be pretty malleable. And why I didn't do other things? I don't think I had a, a frame of reference for those other things. But all I knew is I had to. I had to make a lot of mistakes while um, doing ETL, and 
at least closure didn't interfere with that in any in any respect it kind of supports that workflow <laughs> yes it speeds up the velocity of mistakes so you can get through, all, get through all the inevitable mistakes quicker i think is uh one of the nice things about it so you, you this is you've actually been in the closure world i mean this was a while ago i looked i peeked at your Git account uh, before this conversation, and you have repos in Clojure going back, I think, seven years, um, which is kind of a long time for Clojure or a Clojureist. Uh, and, and I guess I'm wondering, if you look back over your time with Clojure, what has changed, like, what's the best thing that's happened to Clojure since you've been using it? I think the best thing was the realization that there is a bit of a design philosophy around why certain things exist in their forms in enclosure uh, and in enclosure script, and that philosophy has moved to the broader community. Hmm. So you see a lot of influence of um, closure script tooling in the wider JavaScript ecosystem. You see the kind of leverage that um, you get, um, and those benefits are being being realized. That's that's the sort of that's the most significant thing, uh-huh. um, but of course, you know, you can you can point to numerous things along along the um, along the timeline that have been significant for for closure. Most recently, um, spec for sure, right. and datomic before that. But, um, I think the biggest impact, in in my opinion, is is really the 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 mindset has um, has kind of taken on. Mm. So, so what do you think the, like in your mind, what's, what is the closure mind, mindset? What's the, the critical part of that? I guess the relentless emphasis on um, simplicity and primitives and being cognizant of the, um, the places in your code where um, complexity um, often lies. I feel like if I, if I try to embody the full philosophy of of closure i'm going to end up sa- sounding like um miss teen south carolina <laughs> um, <laughs> but i want to say it's there there is sort of a relentless pursuit of what are the primitives right. um but that that means that would that would imply that it really kind of sticks to primitives but it it obviously doesn't right because from building blocks are only building blocks um well, I, I sometimes think that there, I think there's lots of languages and systems that try to stick to primitives and in fact stick to primitives. But the, the real trick is to make your building blocks all have uh, perpendicular and very flat sides so they fit together, you know, and I think that's that's sort of the unspoken half of it is. Yeah, you need primitives, but they all need to fit together in sort of arbitrary ways. So I, I guess the the right the term is composability, um, which is one of those words that I don't like because it doesn't actually tell you anything. I think you know, but making the primitives fit together, I think, is is the real trick. Yeah, like da- data at the bottom is yeah yeah that's a that's a huge thing. Yeah, the um, it's what you kind of wish you had um, whenever it's taken away from you. Yes, <laughs> the first thing I'm 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 just like oh i want to transform this collection of maps and yet i have to name a new class or um you know just it 
the the ease of use um, that's huge, and I think that's the, that's the data oriented aspects yeah. that people often talk about. I, I've I've been su- super interested in um, sort of systems design over the last three or four years, and I've had, had the opportunity to to work a lot with um, with AWS and um, and tools like Kubernetes and mm-hmm. uh, and I've. I guess over the evolution of my career, I've I've shifted from focusing on the the program at hand, the the single process that you're that you're working on, um, to thinking about things in terms of um, uh, processes put together into a into a system, and you know this I guess this it's a it's a common seems like a straightforward evolution of your of your of your thought process. But I, I'm beginning to see closures ideas in a lot of um, other places. Like I uh, was working with this HTTP proxy called Envoy. It's one of the more modern um, HTTP proxies, and it's it's configured completely through a data API. Okay. Um, and that was really unique to me. And it's not it's not a, an API where I call I call Envoy and I configure it the way I want. It's actually an API where Envoy calls you. Really? They call an endpoint that you implement, and you return data, and the proxy gets configured through that data. And they periodically, um, you know, call you every every minute or so to update its um, configuration. But if you look at a lot of the um, the trends in distributed computing, I guess for for lack of a better term, but you mm-hmm. see, you know, you see a lot of things with a lot of endeavors like the serverless endeavors in AWS, uh, Lambdas and Step Functions, their counterparts in Google um, and Azure, and a lot of um, sort of homegrown things that people are um, building on top of Kubernetes. I see a lot of the same values um, being rediscovered in other places, like the ideas of um, configuring things with uh, data APIs, passing around data. It seems so obvious, you know, it seems so hard to bring it up. But, you know, I still run into, you know, a lot of a lot of programs that run in in the back end that, you know, you you configure it with files that you have to render with templates and then handle all these weird uh, idiosyncrasies of the templating languages. And I feel like we've seen a better way. And finally, that some of this stuff is um, coming to fruition in, in unexpected places. Yeah, certainly. I'm spending a fair bit of time these days working with OpenCV, which is the sort of popular open source computer vision and image processing library. And it does amazing things, but every API, every function call in that thing is a new adventure in mutability. Um, (laughs) And that... I, I think probably I was bad in a in a previous life because someone had me do closure for a few years and then use OpenCV because it is just, you know, <laughs> uh, there there's there's a million different types and there's lots of ways that you can represent the same data in completely different types and then have to convert them back and forth while you're mutating things left and right and it just uh, it really. You know, buried in there is wonderful code to do amazing things, and trying to get at it is making me cry. So, I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm currently having the opposite experience uh, than than you are. I'm sort of going backwards uh, into it. For me, I, I think for me, 
um, kind of on a, a, a tactical level. I really do think that, like, you, you know, it's kind of a who would win in a fight, Superman or the Hulk or something kind of question. But if you, for me, if you stripped away everything, uh, all the less important things from closure and just had one thing left, I think for me, it would be the immutable data structures. I think uh, certainly for me, when I was learning closure, I can almost remember the moment when I realized what you know, kind of universal immutability means uh, in terms of, of building programs and things like that. And I've never, ever lost that feeling of, of this is amazing that you can, you can sort of do this in a, in a program and make it reasonably efficient. You've, uh, <laughs> ignorance is bliss when you're on the other, the other side, yeah. but I guess is the, the half, the half empty glass. Yeah, 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 yeah. You kids don't know how easy you have it. I kind of want to circle back around to the to the music thing because so I am like a lot of developers kind of a, an amateur and and to be quite honest pretty bad musician although it is one of the things I love in life more than anything else and I'm just wondering since I think you have a slightly different perspective I think it's it's probably true that developers are on average tend to be uh, musicians more often than the general population, that is just my impression. I think it's true. Um, do you think that's true? I and do you? I would definitely agree. Why do you think that is? I've thought about this for a while, and I the most I can come up with is the fact that uh, rhythm is sort of a, a structural way of thinking about time, mm-hmm. and um, there's an analogy there with um, programs being things that happen, uh, you know, over the the execution time in a very different way. Um, um, but there's, I, I think some people have a proclivity to that, mm-hmm. um, to to the idea of um, uh, structuring time and structuring uh, mm-hmm. rhythm. But uh, I think uh, the other part of it is that people who are, you know just above beginner musicians are able to um, hold more topics uh, hold more musical ideas in their heads like for example if you're if you're sight reading a piece that you've never seen before you kind of have to um, read ahead you have to keep things in your in your active memory you have to be um, multitasking and probably people that are good at that are um, generally good at um, programming too because um, as you know, um, a lot of programs require sometimes too many things to be in your head um, at the same time. But um, I feel that a lot in music. You have harmony, you have the melody. Sometimes you have different layers of harmony. Um, you have uh, ideas of, of counterpoint, which is the combination of melodies over time that uh, that happen to coincide in, in certain ways. Um, and sometimes those certain ways they coincide result in uh, new harmony or uh, sort of ephemeral harmonies. You talk about suspensions or passing tones or any of the other sort of um, music theory jargon. But um, mm-hmm. but I think there there is sort of a parallel between memory, like a, a human memory, um, the way you approach music and the way you approach writing a program, you st- it both require you to have like a, a working set. 
Mm. For me, I think the thing in my head that programming and music have in common is they're both kind of emergent phenomenon, right? Like as as a beginning beginner musician, I don't know, I remember the first time I played the seventh chord and it just sounded wrong and horrible. <laughs> um, but you put it in context of going from the major to whatever, and you put it in the middle of the song and it sounds really good because it's sort of in context or something. I'm sure you uh, know much more about this than I do. Um, and I, I sort of feel like that is what happens in programming as well, that, that you, you take a bunch of things that are really very simple and you put them together and, and suddenly you have this thing that will do unpredictable things. And uh, certainly I feel that way about music. Sometimes uh, I play music and it's unpredictably good and some, more times it's unpredictably <laughs> bad. But, um, but nevertheless, it's, it's, it, 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 do you know what I mean? It's, it's like it's taking individual pieces and putting them together in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of interesting way. And then something more comes out of it is what I think maybe at least I think that's the attraction for me uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. Um, so would you say like it's a beauty in music is somewhat similar to, to elegance and let's say a, a program? Well, I would hesitate to say that to you. Uh, <laughs> I, it is what it is what I what I say to myself before I go to bed at night. I think. Uh, uh, but the the other thing is, I think I think programmers have a, have an advantage because you can't be a programmer and not uh, sort of have a have a uh, ability to deal with. Um, obscure notations and kind of mapping something that's written on a page to something more Um, and it's certainly uh, in taking music lessons I think the only time I ever impressed my instructor was when I learned to read music very quickly you know kind of in the intellectual sense of oh that's a quarter note and a G Um, and that's where the that's the last thing I ever did to impress him so I doubt that. Yeah, I mean, you also have to start with the the fundamentals, like this quarter note is a, is a G, and then then you see a G chord, right? And right. You don't see three notes stacked on top of each other, and they happen to be G, B, and D. But you know, you start to enlarge the the vocabulary, and you see structures rather than um, little atoms. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a very similar similar experience. Um, Definitely music, like, you know, it's more immediately satisfying <laughs> than, than programming. But have you, have you, uh, have you heard of this uh, form of uh, musical theory called Schenkerian analysis? This is like super obscure stuff. Let's assume that I have not. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, um, there, there's a circuitous analogy here, but um, so Schenkerian analysis is this idea that the structural parts of music, uh, of a particular piece of music, um, when you zoom out of the whole piece, can be um, can be analyzed. And we, we talk about um, not structure in terms of form, like this is a uh, piece in ABA form or it's a rondo form piece uh, mm-hmm. or it's sonata allegro form, um, but not structure like that, but structure in terms of the um, 
the tonalities and the keys uh, changing over time. And if you look at some of these masterpieces, like, um, for example, uh, the uh, Bartok's uh, Music for Strings, Percussion, and Chalets, if you were to take the score and do this um, Schenkerian analysis on it, which you can just think of as a uh, super reductive pass over, like it's a super, um, you take out all the details and you're only left with the structure. Okay. And you'll see in, in Bartok's piece that the whole structure of the piece is shaped like a kite and it goes from the the beginning of the piece and it, it, it sort of widens all the way to um, the critical section of the piece, which is uh, happens to be 0.619 uh, of the way through the whole piece, okay. which is the, which is close enough to the golden ratio. And then it wedges back in at the very end. And it's, it's, it's explicitly designed and, um, that's one form of Schenkerian analysis. You can apply Schenkerian analysis to um, to uh, Bach or Mozart, and you you can see the harmonies over over time. And um, anyway, so the analogy here, uh-huh. <laughs> back to programming, is um, is the sort of I- idea of re- reducing uh, reducing a program to its essential complexity. Right. And that that's something that that. Once you begin to see how to how to um, how to reduce something to the to the to the essence to to the just the structural details, I think that that's some that's a philosophy that closure kind of encourages you to to look at. I guess it's a it's a bit of a stretch of an analogy, but um, but I guess that's what when you take um, when you take that idea of seeing this is a G and mm-hmm. it's a it's a quarter note and you zoom out all the way to the, the least amount of detail and then you would see this is this whole piece it's called this and it has this shape right mm-hmm. but it's, it's the same idea of, of um, zooming out into you know from a note into a chord into a phrase right. into a section um, and I'm not sure where I'm going with that <laughs> well, well, well let me try because what I was thinking as you were saying that is it kind of relates back to what you were saying about you're seeing the ideas of closure uh, leaking out into the into larger contexts. And and one of the things that I think is that okay, so so let me so I've been programming for a really long time, and so I I saw a lot of the bad things that people did, uh, you know, before we got better at it. And one of the things was you know very early on we we all knew to put source con- put our programs in source control right that was a discovery we made at some point that that was a good idea but there was a fairly long period where people would say you would say um, and I did a lot of configuration management so it was me saying this hey you need to put that configuration file in source code control and the person at the other end of the conversation would say no no that's that's not program. That's just some configuration. I don't need to, to huh. do that. Um, and it's sort of this, and I think of that as sort of the primal example of this principle that that there's things that you do, like, like principles that you follow in the small, like I'm writing some little program that you follow in the medium, which is maybe the configuration file for this program to start it up. In the large, which is I need a configuration for my whole system that 
that I keep careful track of. And that's kind of like, you know, eventually you do that often and often enough and you're into the whole DevOps thing, but it's the same principle at every single level. So it's like a, it's a self-similarity kind of thing. And what I was thinking when you were sort of saying that the closure ideas are leaking out into, into larger contexts is, is that maybe that's an example of that, is that there are just plain good ideas, which are, uh, uh, is it scale invariant? I don't know if that's the right term, but they apply it a whole bunch of different scales, right? It kind of doesn't matter at which scale, for example, you're talking about if you have information that's important to the system, it should be checked in somewhere. Um, so let, let me put those words in your mouth and see how they fit. That, no, that's, that, that's a great uh, that's a great point. I mean, when you look at Datomic, Datomic is that same idea of, uh, you know, it's a giant data structure that you can refer to as a value. And, right. you know, it's as if it was checked into source control. And, and it's immutable. You know, this version of it never changes. It's always the same. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a. There's a good paper by Pat Helland called uh, "Immutability Changes Everything." <laughs> That's it's great. A, it's, a, it's a it's a really short read. Yeah, um, uh, I think it's maybe three or four pages, but it it um, it takes immutability and and shows it at all kinds of different layers in the stack at the you know at the storage layer at uh, the network layer. Um, it's a it's a really good good sort of um, inspirational paper, and you know I, I guess. For all the problems that we have in, in systems and in complexity, it's it's really nice to have um, sort of a a technique that you can you can hit up for for some dopamine and it works every time. I've never really <laughs> never really been bit by immutability. No, yes, yes. I, I uh, so so for me the the uh, so I got bit by immutability was that I wrote in the very early days when I was picking up closure, I wrote a fourth interpreter because that's one of the programs I write, um, in every programming language. Just, it's like, a you know, what do you, what do you say after hello world, right? You need something more complicated to write, to really learn a programming language. So I wrote a fourth interpreter, which did that. Fourth is a very simple programming language, and it goes, you know, you execute an instruction, and it goes from state to state to state to state. And so I wrote this function that, you know, mutated my state, and at some point I realized that I didn't have to mute anything, mutate anything. I could just generate the states in sequence, like this is my program before I run this instruction, and this is my program afterwards. And I rewrote the thing so it generated just you know, a, a lazy sequence of states of my program. And it was, uh, to this day, I find that mind blowing that, you know, you could at least in principle write kind of a programming language, which is, which you debug by just looking back in time, you know? Um, Interesting. That, that I, sorry. Oh, no, that, that, that re resonates with me. The, uh, the idea that you can just, you know, write, write this, um, uh, like a reduce over the states of, of something, and then you can just pull from it. And, yeah. And it, and it works. <laughs> yes, and it works. Um, and it was not, I mean, so obviously it was sort of a, you know, a hand-grown implementation of a programming language, but it was not the worst performing one I'd ever written. So, um, you know, it worked, and it worked halfway decently. Let's see, so you, in your day job, when you're not playing music or contemplating the, the larger issues of life and immutability, you are the <laughs> a principal engineer at Help Finch. 
Yeah, we're um, we're uh, in the in the healthcare space. We uh-huh. do um, we have two products really. One of them is um, uh, refill management. Um, a lot of nurses and, and doctors spend a lot of time um, just tending to uh, pending refill uh, pr- prescription refill queues uh, in their EMR of choice, and it creates a lot of waste. And so we we try to automate that. Um, we try to automate that stuff away so that um, you know people can spend hopefully a little bit more than five minutes with a patient, and uh, instead of you know doing administrative work um, uh, with with refills. Um, and we sort of generalize that into, um, visit planning in general. So Mm -hmm. if you, if you think of like automating the management of prescriptions, but, but instead automating, you know, the, the care of, a um, let's say a diabetic patient, um, where you have to get periodic blood tests and, uh, sort of, sort of keep on a, uh, on a tight schedule. We, we try to help with that too. So we're, we're, we sort of, we're in the automation space, um, in, in healthcare EMR, um, on the totally on the clinical side. Ah. I, I love the term visit planning because I had never heard that before, but I instantly knew what you were talking about. That is a great term. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of times there's, there's not a, a lot of, pl- of planning. Sometimes the charts get pulled right when you, right when you show up. Right. And, uh, right. It would be, it would be nice to, to get a head start on that, uh, you know, granted that we have computers now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Um, so, um, is there anything that you wanted to talk about? I, we're, we're sort of, I can't believe it, but we're, we're, we're through the better part of an hour here. Um, so is there anything on your mind that you wanted to talk about? Well, um, I have been in the crypto uh, space cryptocurrency space for the last uh, year before joining Healthfinch, and I, I think um, that space is so crazy right now that it's um, it's it might be fun to talk about. Sure, might be, absolutely. It might be uh, might serve as some some comedic um, comedic <laughs> elements. <laughs> um, so so we, I was I, I, I'm I sorry to interrupt, but I I have a request. I think. I think one of the advantages of being the host of a podcast is I get to uh, represent the person who uh, doesn't know and is afraid to ask. Okay, so cryptocurrencies are all the big cool thing. Could you spend two or three minutes or five minutes or however much time you it takes and just kind of take me through the basics of what is it, what makes it different and why are people excited about it? So cryptocurrencies are a way um, for people to agree upon the order of some sort of events that have happened without actually having a um, particular person designated as uh, the, the sort of system of record for that, those order of events. Right. So in, in um, general um, uh, blockchain um, systems, there's not a particular party that uh, wields any more power over any of the other parties. So in in the current financial um, system, we have banks, and banks uh, are the authoritative uh, source of um, truth for the sequence of transactions that their customers um, do against their systems. But um, at least in Bitcoin, which is one of the 
the most popular um, mm-hmm. instance of a of a blockchain. They um, users in Bitcoin uh, don't wield any more power over um, the next user, and each one of them has a complete record of all the transactions that have uh, happened in the system or have ever happened in the system. And everybody is able to independently validate that, um, that the correct, uh, the, the, you know, the current uh, snapshot in time, the current state of um, everybody's accounts is, um, is coherent with whatever the transaction history was. So everybody, anybody can do that sort of validation. And there, there are people who don't even um, participate in, in executing transactions, but they just merely validate that, you know, Everybody has produced the right checksums and all is all is right in the world. So that's the the basic idea of blockchains in general mm-hmm. is that you want to remove this um, central authority um, and you want to be able to um, make progress without that central authority. You want to be able to exchange money, exchange goods um, uh, without reliance. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So one other question. So so why are the price of graphics cards so high? Well, um, that ha- that has an actual straightforward answer, and that's uh, that the mechanism for agreement in Bitcoin and Ethereum um, for agreeing on the transaction history depends on how much hash power you have, how much ability you have to, to compute these little sums that... Um, both of those networks require and mm-hmm. there's been basically a uh, just a run on all the graphics cards and you know the current generation of cards are are very good at um, computing these checksums um, we used to call them um, it's called proof of work in the in the technical mm-hmm. um, in the literature but um, but we used to call them proof of dead polar bears because <laughs> there, this yes. computation has no meaning it's um, it is not useful. There's there's really nothing to it except that it's proof that you've spent enough energy, and we have these humongous energy problems with Bitcoin, uh, where um, it, Bitcoin the the amount of energy that the Bitcoin network um, uh, consumes just to you know to maintain its state is more than um, I think it was more than the the country of Ireland at the last wow. at the last article, but I'm sure it's grown since then. Um, so, so but the, yeah, that's that's why. <laughs> so, so the brick and mortar equivalent of sort of the graphics cards grinding away and melting the polar ice caps, it, I would think, would be sort of gold mining, right? We we all agree that gold's valuable because we all agree that gold's valuable, and so people mine more gold than they might otherwise mine. Just because gold's valuable, because we all think gold's valuable. Yeah, it um, that that's a that's a good analogy, and there are, there are systems that are that are being designed that are uh, that go beyond that sort of shed this proof of work, this idea of just wasting a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of interesting um, sort of points in the designs, but unfortunately, in the news, you only really hear about. The prominent um, networks like Bitcoin right. and Ethereum, but um, I worked on one with uh, with Intel a couple of years ago, um, which uses their secure enclave system that's built into Intel chips. But uh, instead of wasting a lot of power, um, essentially all the participants on these 
in this particular network, they make a subroutine call that happens to take place in the secure enclave mm-hmm. on uh, uh, Intel chips. And you can think of this enclave as this, this place where memory is encrypted from the operating system. Um, so even in the event of a compromised operating system, uh, you cannot read the memory in the um, in the secure enclave, and you get like a basic programming primitives. Like you can you can call C libraries, um, but you can't do like you know you don't have syscalls, you don't have uh, you don't have threads, uh, right. or at least you didn't at that time. But um, so the way that that works is um, how do you make a blockchain based uh, based on this secure enclave? Well. You essentially run a lottery system within the enclaves, and everybody participates in this lottery system. And the subroutine call that you make into the enclave is um, produces this certificate that could only have occurred in the enclave. Mm. And there's a lot of um, you know there's public key cryptography back backing all of this. Um, but it's um, I'll I'll spare you the details, but because it's quite boring actually. <laughs> the um, the, the essence, though, is that nobody can forge these certificates. Right. And if you see one in the wild um, and the certificate is for a time that is in the past, you can assume that um, that um, that person that whoever produced that certificate had the uh, had the winning uh, the winning ticket. And whoever has the winning ticket can append transactions to this global ledger of, of transactions. And you can take their word for it if they have the winning ticket. And so that way you don't like you don't um, produce these tickets by hashing a bunch of numbers and waiting for the right sequence to appear in this random stream of numbers and all the other other variants on on waste. Right. So so is uh, blockchain and Bitcoin uh, the future? Is that where our monetary system is going? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great answer. <laughs> Um, it's, I will say that I would, I'll, I'll, I'll make this prediction in five or 10 years, the idea of distributed consensus, is not going away. Mm -hmm. It's going to, it's taken hold. I'm not sure what form it's going to take. Um, so I guess it's important. I would encourage people to look into it. Um, but there's so much, there's so many charlatans, there's outright fraud, right? There's, um, just kind of there can be some really sloppy thinking going on in that whole space and so if you can if you can separate the chaff and really um focus in on the the handful of things that um that rise up and are legitimately interesting i think um um monero and zk cash are interesting on the the currency side um but um but it's it's also like this technology is, if I understand it, given my very limited understanding of it, um, and given the fact that my only interest in money is really spending it, um, <laughs> it, it, it seems like it would have other uh, applications besides just kind of keeping like if I can trade if, if I understand what you're, you've told me, it means that you can you can build this essentially uh, chain of uh, what what do the police call it chain of custody of some bit of information. I can see the chain of transactions that led me to this bit of information. It seems to me that that's generally useful. Yeah. Um, so there have been a lot of um, 
proposals for blockchain use outside of currency mm-hmm. um, systems. Because currency is what gets 99% of the press. But right. um, one of the other like large things that um, have come up, at least in sort of industry standard white papers, is um, what's called supply chain management. And um, usually you get um, these examples of, you know, I can track the fish that was caught in the ocean from um, right from the uh, from the fisherman's net to the table and you know with cryptographically signed messages you can you can see the provenance of what happened to this fish or even like you know what temperature it was transported under Um, but all of that stuff has a limitation like you know the limitation being well, you know, there's certainly going to be transfers of the fish that don't have a record associated with right. it, right? But um, supply management, supply chain management comes up a lot. Um, where I was working in the space was not uh, in a currency um, fashion, but it was uh, it was having to do with uh, medical records and being able to sure. um, share them securely without having um, without having a you know centralized um, party. Uh, mediate everything so the idea there was you could um sort of do this i think you called it chain of custody um of a medical record um you can make these attestations and they're really kind of receipts and you can place those on a shared ledger and everybody can inspect those receipts to make sure that for example um if i've authorized my physician to check my insurance eligibility um that uh that that authorization is recorded because right now it sort of disappears into a filing cabinet somewhere. Right. 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 Um, I, I've often thought that, that possibly, you know, you know, there, if you read the news, what's in the news a lot is whether the news is actually news. Um, you know, we, we keep hearing these stories about people making up fake news reports and for whatever advantage. And it seems to me that that blockchain would be a great way of saying, okay, I this thing has appeared on my Facebook feed. Where did it come from, really? And where did it come from before that? Um, have Have you seen those uh, synthetic videos where they play um, Barack Obama's face saying something that I, he never actually said? I have, yes. That that stuff is um, kind of terrifying, but yeah. um, I think. I think the bar that you have to clear to to do this though is you have to be able to to explain this chain of custody without having to explain public key cryptography. All right. Yes. <laughs> you know, because as soon as you start talking about public and private keys and oh, this video from this politician was actually signed by their yeah. um by their keys, you know, then you've 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 easily lost a lot of people, but I, I think that's one of the ongoing challenges is how do we make this stuff that's, it's truly interesting, but how do you make it accessible? So, so I, 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 I've always thought that the, the best explanation of, of public key cryptography, um, I don't know what that would be, but I know that it starts with the sentence division is hard. Um, yeah, I think I think that's something everyone can relate to because in second or third grade, right, you're you're adding and multiplying and subtracting like a champ, and you hit long division, right? I think probably we are going to or we have arrived at the time for our okay. final question, which is, Gotti, do you have any advice for our audience? 
Yeah. Well, I, I'm assuming our audience is like-minded closure developers, and I would say, um, say no more, and say, say no more to um, features in your programs that could possibly curtail your ability to make decisions later. <laughs> I, um, you see a lot of programs that have, you know, clearly. Um, said yes to everything and you see even languages that have said yes to everything but um i think it's important to to say a no in a in a polite way and to sort of ward off on um um sort of creeping featureitis and uh i would would want to encourage people to to do that a little bit more all right i think that is great advice and i think uh i think your advice is just say no but but kind and gentle soul that you are, you would say, no, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gotti, this has been really great. I have really enjoyed this hour, and uh, you really have to come back and be on the show again. All right, Russ. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the Cognicast. have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is brought to you by Cognitech. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We're here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Gadi Shaban, who has the wonderful Twitter handle of at smash the past. It's a great handle. Our host this week was, well, me, Russ Olson. I'm at Russ Olson on Twitter and most of the other places. Episode cover art is, well, by me, Russ Olson. Audio production is by other people, Joe Smith and Jared Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our new theme music introduced this week is by Cognitech's own Ben Camphouse, who produces music as Pattern Shift. Look for Ben's music as Pattern Shift on any of the major streaming services. And if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm Russ Olson. Thanks a lot for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.